I wonder why you think about the things in your life the way that you do. Have you ever thought about that? Why is it that you love the things that you love and hate the things that you hate? The really big things down to the really small things. Why do you love the music that you love? Are you aware that there are people who live on this planet who hate the music you love? Why do you hate the food that you hate? Are you aware that there's people on this planet who love the very food that makes you want to, what's the expression in Northern Ireland, boke? Is that right? I think that's the first laugh I've ever got at Unichurch. Thanks, guys. Why do you hold particular positions and perspectives on the big issues in life? How do you explain things, death, suffering, sickness, illness, sex, marriage, power, success, failure. When you evaluate those things happening in your life as they've unfolded in your life in one way or the other, how do you explain them? You see, all of us wear different sets of glasses to view what happens in our life. It could be shaped by our upbringing, by our background. It could be shaped by your parents or your peers. But all of us view life and view the things that unfold and happen within life from a particular perspective with a particular set of glasses. All of us with different glasses, if you understand the metaphor, a different viewpoint and understanding. When you become a Christian or when you continue to live as a Christian you are given a brand new set of glasses. Are you aware of that? Do you know that being a Christian, having faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he died for you, that does not just change your eternity. It is not just a free ticket to heaven. Oi, I believe in Jesus because I've heard that's how you get to heaven. That's what I believe. It does not just transform your eternity. It actually transforms how you view the present. Who Jesus is. Take hold of this right now. Who Jesus is and what Jesus has done utterly shapes and transforms the glasses we wear to view what happens in our life. Do you know that the book of Colossians we've just been reading says some incredible things about you if you're a Christian? It paints this picture for you of who you truly are. That before you know Christ, you are dead in your sins, but after you know him, you are alive. That you're in darkness, but now you have light. The book of Colossians paints these incredible, spiritual, eternal pictures of you if you're in Christ. But what we learn is that the spiritual reality of who you are if you're a Christian, by that I mean your eternal reality, that you are going to heaven because of your faith in Jesus, that truth and those facts, they utterly transform how you view your earthly reality as well. Your faith is not so much what you believe, it's who you are, not just in the future, but also in the present. And the passage we're looking at today Man, this is a case in point. Do you understand that so far in Colossians, we've been dealing with heavenly things, like really enormous prospects and ideas about Jesus, who Jesus is, what Jesus has truly done, that Jesus is not just a man, he's man and God, the creator and sustainer of all things. 
what Jesus has done. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead and what it means for us. We've looked at these crazy big eternal things. But now here at the end of chapter 3, beginning of chapter 4, you can imagine Paul who wrote this book. He's driving. He's driving a manual car and he changes gear. Paul in this passage takes these great eternal truths and he shows how those eternal truths transform our present realities. He does a focus, a real narrowing down on what it means to be a Christian and how being a Christian transforms our family life, who we are as husbands and wives, who we are as parents, who we are as children, but also how being a Christian transforms who we are at work, either as a student, either uh, as a worker, either as someone who has worked or, or will work in the future. And so that's all we're going to do tonight, see how being a Christian transforms the daily reality for all of us. Now I want to say one final thing. Tonight, as we look at these principles that are given to us in this book of the Bible, there's going to be se- several of them where you're like, well, that doesn't apply to me. As we look at husbands and wives, you're like, man, I'm not married. I've got no intention of being married. There's no one who'd ever marry me. You might have all those sorts of things and go, well, this has got nothing to do with me. Or you might look at the one with parents and children and say, I don't have kids, or my parents aren't alive, or I'm not working, so that doesn't... That would be a grave mistake if you were to ignore these parts of the Bible. Because understanding all of this, even if it isn't directly relevant to your life in the present, helps understand the glasses God has given you to understand all things to understand everything we get involved in. So come with me to verse 18 and look at one of the most controversial verses, particularly in 2018 in the Bible, as we look at Paul's direction for how eternal truths transform present realities. This first direction we have here is for wives. Look at verse 18. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Let's just skip that one and we'll move. Whoa. Does not that sound appalling to us, to our ears? This direction sounds what? Archaic, misogynistic, sexist, chauvinistic. Surely this is proof positive that Christianity is sexist. Christianity does teach an inequality between men and women, husbands and wives. Maybe you're here today and this is actually deeply personal. Maybe you're sitting here today and you have been the victim of misogynistic, bullying, abusive, hurtful behaviour at the hands of a man, at the hands of a romantic partner, being made to feel you were worthless and you were useless. And as you read this, which says, wives, submit to your husbands, which appears to be women are inferior to men, this feels like just another stab of a dagger, another affirmation of your worthlessness, We really need to work out what this means, don't we? Is the Bible really saying men and women are unequal? Men are superior to women? Well, let's unplug this verse. Have a look. The word submit. Wives, submit yourselves. What does that word actually mean? For us, it can sound very violent, kind of like a policeman submits a criminal. And it can be used in that way, but that's actually not what the word means within Christianity. If you're familiar with your Bibles, even if you're not familiar with your Bibles, I will make you familiar. (laughs) 
This word submit should sound familiar, but not in a negative way. The word submit in the Bible means the acceptance of someone or something's authority. Why do these words sound familiar? You see, the only way you can become a Christian is if you submit yourself to whom? To God. If you put yourself under his authority. If you stop striving towards independence and instead rely and put your dependence on God. Place your eternity, your past and your present in his hands. Why would you do that? Why would any of us, intelligent, rational, very good looking individuals, why would we put our dependence on God? Because he's trustworthy. Because he's real. He's speaking, he's doing, he, he does what he says he will do. So now look at that passage, understand the word submission and look at the passage. Take note of what it says, submit yourselves. It does not say, husbands, submit your wives. Force your wives to submit. This is a call for voluntary submission, not just that, as is fitting in the Lord. In other words, this is a direction for Christian wives with Christian husbands, as is fitting, as is under God's law. Christian husband and wife. And you might be saying, so what? So what? What possible difference does this make if this is for Christian men and women or not? This is obviously a direction for sexism. This is obviously an express commandment which proves the Bible teaches inequality. But we know that can't be true. In chapter 2, verse 11 of Colossians, we have just read just last week that all people in Christ are equal. The Bible screams throughout its pages, male, female, black, white, rich, poor. All are equal in Christ. So this can't be teaching. It cannot be teaching inequality between men and women. So what is it saying? Well, you can only properly understand this direction if you look at the direction given to husbands as well. Look at verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So what are the wives to do? To submit. The husband is to what? To love. Now, of course, that is a difficult word, love, isn't it? We use it nearly more than any other word. I love chicken. I love death metal music. All these things are true about me, by the way. We use that word all the time. I love this, I love that. And perhaps you, if you're a female here today, you've been the victim of someone who said they love you and then has taken advantage or, or hurt you in such a, a strong way, you've got a very low view of what a man means when he says the word love. But remember what God has given us, a new set of glasses, a new set of perspectives in which to view words, in which to view and understand life. So it matters not what we define love as, does it? Because we're humans. What matters is what God says love is. So God, what is love? We'll have a look. It'll be on the screen, 1 Corinthians 13. Let God define love for us. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects 
always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. So what we have here is a direction for men. It's not a direction for empty romantic expression in order for who knows what power, sexual gratification, any number of things. That is not what men are being called to. This is not a call to a warm feeling of affection. This is a call to a love that walks and talks, is passionate and overflowing and overwhelming and relentless and sacrificial. Husbands are to love. Now, I want you to hold on to that. What are husbands to do? They are to love. What were women called to do? Wives. Wives are to submit. So what are wives called to submit to? Wives are called to submit to their husband's love. That's what this is saying. To accept the kindness, trust, hope, perseverance and sacrifice. This is not about superiority. This is not about inferiority. This is not about an inequality. This is the Bible making it perfectly clear that men and women are equal but different. God lays out order within the chaos of this life. We make no apologies for the fact that God makes it perfectly clear that within a marriage, within a family, the husband is to be the leader. But when you hear leader, do not associate it with the awful leaders you've had in your life. Power hungry, bully, all those things. No. But a leader who encourages, applauds and builds up, that is Christian marriage, not a dictatorship, an equal partnership fueled by love and acceptance of that love. Around 18 months ago, uh, me and my wife got a job offer to come to a church called All Saints Church, Belfast. Have you heard of that? Oh, it's this church. Okay. I don't want to tell you what happened, but you know what happened. We're here. I got it. Woo! Can you imagine what it was like 18 months ago for us to get a job offer to move to Belfast? We li- we're from Sydney. Second only to Belfast is the most, city in the most beautiful city in the world, obviously. And man, our life was good. Let me tell you, our life was really good. Uh, we loved our family, our extended family. We were all close to all of them. We loved our house. We had this incredible house, huge barbecue pit area. It was fantastic. Man, our little kids, uh, they were starting to play rugby league and cricket, real men's sports, you know, I really love. We loved our church. We were, man, we were a fantastic church family. My wife's friends, my friends. But then we get this job offer to Belfast, and I feel, man, I feel really like God is saying, you should go to Belfast. Uh, he's pushing us to go to Belfast. And so my wife and I, we talked and talked and talked and talked and talked and talked and talked. We listed out pros, we listed out cons. One day she'd be super keen, I'd be unenthusiastic, then vice versa, we'd swap it around. We prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and then talked and talked and talked and talked and talked. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Eventually, after months and months of discussion and thinking it through, my wife Sammy said, Dave, this is your decision. I will support you whatever you do. But I think we should go. I want to make it clear here that if I said, no, Sammy, we're staying, she would have supported me. That's the kind of woman she is. But I also want to make it clear that this, for me, is as good a close to picture of a Christian-type dynamic relationship as we can have here. 
I said, yes, I think we should go too, so that's why we're here. But if I disagreed, well, I don't think, for example, if the shoe was on the other foot, I could have loved her properly and forced her to move to the other side of the world if she really didn't want to go and led her the way that God has called me to lead. Christian marriage is not a picture of dictatorship or bullying or abuse. It's a picture of sacrifice and love, equality, voluntary submission, yes, but all springing forth from being Christians who has meant that you have already submitted yourself to Christ. So we've got that dynamic in marriage. We've spent a lot of time there. Let me quickly show you the dynamic we have now in parenting with children and with parents. Have a look at verse 20 to 21. Children! And that doesn't just mean infant. It's you if you are or you've had a parent. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Now I want to make it clear, this means fathers and mothers. It's probable that fathers just need this hard word more than mums do. I want to make it clear, do not read inequality into these directions. This isn't saying children are subhuman and parents are superhuman. Not at all. What is the purpose of these directions? You and I both know that the world is screaming out to us to put ourselves first. Me first, me first, me first. You deserve it. Take a break. It's all about you. The most important person is you. That's the advertising we hear all the time. But look at the directions of order that God has given the family. Children, obey your parents. But not for your own sake, but for theirs. In other words, serve your parents. Children, serve your parents. This is how you will love your parents. Parents, do not run your children down. Don't embitter them, discourage them and crush them. Serve them. Love them. Cherish them. We have a picture of two parties, parent and child, both called to love each other more than they love themselves, serve each other, put each other first. Why do they do that? Look at the end of verse 20. For this pleases the Lord. Our actions are the opposite of self-serving. Our actions are to glorify God, not glorify ourselves, not amplify the parent and diminish the child or vice versa, but rather to have God at the centre of your family. Now, I grew up in a family um, which was just a fantastic family. We really didn't have many relational dysfunctional difficulties. My parents are celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary this year. For me, the home was a place of refuge and, and safety, and I actually thought that most people had that. That's what I thought. I thought, well, everyone's got this home of, of love and supportive, selfless, kind people. But as I got older and I ran my own home and as I got older and I experienced other people's families, I've realised, man, it, that's not true, is it? In fact, that's not even close to being true. I got divorced before I was a Christian at the age of 22 and that was at the end of two years of uh, angry shouting and fighting in front of children. Home for me wasn't a refuge, it was a place of conflict. My beautiful wife Sammy, both her parents are divorced multiple times on either side. I just was talking to a friend today um, who told me that between his parents they count 11 divorces. 11. I know families who've had sibling relationships torn apart due to fights over Inheritance, marriages by domestic violence, drug and alcohol abuse, parents and children estranged, siblings estranged, 
Family life is meant to be this thing and it's painted for us as this thing of just picture perfection and tranquility. This is where we're meant to go. But we know the reality is that most of us don't have family lives at all that are like that. Most of us have family lives that are chaos. So why is God giving us this direction, my friends? See, in the midst of the chaos of the outside world, in the midst of the chaos of your family life, God is calling order. Putting God's glasses on means actually seeing things from his perspective and understanding that he knows better than we do. That hold on for a moment, if you've got both husband and wife loving and and submitting, if you've got parent and child loving and serving each other, this is how it works. A friend of mine in Australia called Warren uh, struggled with alcoholism for years and years. He was a successful man. He was an accountant, quite wealthy, but had a secret battle with alcohol, was banned from driving for something like seven years or something like that. I mean, this guy just had a real struggle. His poor wife was a Christian, put up with it for years and years, but was really, you could see her, she was a shrunken woman by it. Both his adult children estranged from him due to the result of him turning up drunk to school events and school plays and friend parties and all this sort of stuff. But I had the great privilege three years ago of seeing Warren become a Christian. He put his faith in Jesus. He said, yeah, not me, but but he. Jesus died on the cross for my sin. And he put his faith in Jesus. And eventually, not immediately, but eventually, he decided to stop drinking. It didn't happen automatically. Let me tell you, there was a bunch of times he came to Bible study drunk. But eventually he thought, man, this isn't how I should act as a Christian. One of the greatest privileges of my life over the last few years has been seeing his family life change. And not just because he stopped drinking, but because he's decided to follow what God says about love and leadership and service. He reached out to his wife and apologised for the 20 years of damage that he'd caused. And now... They're holding hands again. They're they're spending time together again. He reached out to his children with humility, not being a victim, but apologising for what he's done. And no, it's not perfect. No, it hasn't worked out 100% perfect yet. But on Facebook last week, I saw the whole family all together on holidays on the north coast of Australia. And let me tell you, that hadn't happened in 10 years. This is what happens when God's order is transformed and implemented into the chaos of our lives. This is a transformative power of God. So that's what we've got in the home life. But again, tonight, you might be saying, well, that's not me. But what does this passage tell us about the workplace? What does it tell us about where we spend the rest of our life? Slogging it out at work or at university or or wherever. Well, have a look at verse 22. Now, I want to make it clear here when it talks about slavery... Paul is using the ancient example of the relationship of slave to slave master in the first century Rome, uh, first century Roman Empire. Now that is not the same thing as a modern day like slave to sex slave or anything like that. It's not the same as a slave an African American slave from a couple of hundred years ago. Christianity was the chief reason that slave trade was abolished, and this is not the approval of slavery. But slavery in the first century was far more like work. Uh, than any other version of slavery. These slaves had rights under Roman law. Many of them lived as members of the family they served. So when we read slaves here, it is not completely, but certainly partially able to transfer that to our situations at work. The only danger is actually 
I won't go into it. But the only danger is going too far the other way. The slaves said it far worse than we do. And yet we can certainly learn from what God tells the slaves and the slave masters. So have a look at verse 22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it not only when their eye is on you and to carry their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Verse 23, looking on. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. How often is it for all of us that we do what we do in order to impress? We do what we do in order to get promoted, in order to get more money, or potentially maybe in order because we're terrified of our employers and, and, and we're terrified of, of cheesing them off. But here we are liberated from being prisoners to either people-pleasing or people-fearing, particularly at work. How? Well, it's all about that term earthly Masters, human masters. Do you see it there in, in the reading? Verse 23, human masters. We are told to work hard. That is a godly thing to do. That is a Christian thing to do, but not out of a desire to fill our own pockets, not out of a desire to impress people, not out of a fear of people's opinion of us. No, the power of the human master, the power of the human boss is completely pulled out. It's temporary. You and I as Christians are called to work hard because our true master, the real master we follow, Jesus Christ, is the one that we work for. Verse 24. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. And my dear friends, I don't know what your work situation is. I don't know what it's like even at university or college or, or if you're in between work. But what's important to understand and grasp is that what you do for a living is not the most important thing about you. It does not define your identity. No, the most important thing about you is not your earthly master, but your heavenly one. And we see that in chapter 4, verse 1, with the directions to the employer, to the master as well. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know you also have a master in heaven. Christian bosses, Christian masters are not to be tyrants or bullies. They're not to try and urge and drive people forward at every single cost. No. We are all to act under the authority of the true boss, the true master in heaven. In other words, if you are a Christian employer, a Christian employee, you are transformed from working for each other and working for ourselves transformed to work for Christ, to please him. And that dictates how you sit under authority and that dictates how you use it. So my friends, let's take a step back here as we, as we close for the evening. Here we have a radical picture of how to live. How to live your life with Christian glasses on. Life lived from God's perspective, no longer your own. But let me ask you right now, as we've gone through all those directions that God has given us, I wonder if a part of you has thought, well, that's very nice, that's very good, or potentially thought, that's awful, I can't believe he's saying that. But how on earth do I do it? If you're anything like me, you sometimes read commandments and directions in the Bible and you think, well, that sounds great, but man, I'm a battler. I struggle. How am I meant to 
love people like this, submit like this? How am I meant to, to work hard like this? How is any of this actually possible? Well, I think regardless of where you are tonight, regardless of how you stand before God, regardless if you are a Christian or you're not a Christian here tonight, the key thing I want you to take home is that one word we've spent most of this night speaking about. It's that word, submit. You know, we think of submission as a negative term, don't we? We do. We hate the idea of someone trying to be over us, superior to us, and boss us down. We hate that. All of us do. I do. We certainly think that way about it. And not only that, when we think about our lives, we think our true freedom will come through our independence. The moment I'm free of people bossing me around. Did you feel like this when you were at home, when you lived with your parents? Man, true happiness and freedom is there for me as soon as I can get rid of these guys. We're convinced that our freedom, our independence, they're tied together. But Jesus is calling every single person in this room tonight to submit to him. What does that mean? To follow him completely and fully. You see, my friends, being a follower of Jesus is not a part-time pursuit. It's not a jacket you put on and take off whenever it suits you. It's not like a kid's bathing pool. You have one leg in and one leg out. One leg in the world, one leg in following Jesus. That is not Christianity. Jesus says, if anyone would follow me, they must take up their cross and be prepared to die. And tonight, no matter where you stand before God, Christian or non-Christian, this is the battlefield for you. Perhaps tonight you are here and you are a Christian, but you find yourself desperately seeking your own freedom and independence. Desperately convinced that if I found it in work, in love, in sex, in friendship, in relationship, in romance, well then I would have the joy that I'm looking for. So I'm not going to submit that part of my life to Christ's call. I'm going to keep that part for myself. He can have every part of it, but not my career aspirations. They're mine. He can have every part of it, but not my sex life. That's mine. Not my bank account. That's mine. But Christ's call on all of us is to submit it all. Submit to God. Understand that your freedom does not come through your independence. Your freedom comes through dependence on God. God has created you. God has made you. God has breathed life into you. He knows what works best for you. Submit to him. Perhaps you're here tonight and you're not a Christian. You, you know, Dan, in the deep, the bottom of your heart, that, man, I haven't followed Jesus. I, I, that's not who I am. Christ is speaking to you tonight as well. And he is saying, submit to me. You see, all of us have turned our back on God. All of us. All of us have got sin that we carry around with us like a backpack. Sin means rejecting God and we pile it up. And when we die, all of us will face God in judgment. But Christ says in order to be saved, all you must do 
is understand that He died on the cross to take your sin. That salvation is yours. It is freely yours. All you must do is submit to Him. Accept Him. Accept His authority. Put your faith and your love and your trust and your hope in Him. And it it just doesn't matter what you've done. We've all sinned. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter how bad you think you are. Jesus Christ died for sinners. And the one qualification you have for Christianity is not your goodness, it's your sinfulness. So I want to ask you tonight, particularly as we're coming to take communion and remember what Jesus has done on the cross, have you submitted to Christ? If you're a Christian and you've been holding parts of your life back from him, why don't you tonight, as we pray, why don't you bring these things before him and say, Christ, take it all. I'm sick of keeping hold of it. Or perhaps tonight, if you're not a Christian, why don't you come tonight before God and say, God, take it all. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your son, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for this new set of glasses that we are given, this new way of looking at the world, this new understanding and perspective of why things happen, of what's happened in the past, of who Jesus is and what he has done. We pray, Father, for the Christians here tonight who know you and love you, and we pray, Lord, that they would submit all parts of their life over to you. And Lord, we wouldn't hold things back from you, that we would run hearts abandoned towards you, following you, submitting to you, trusting you. And dear God, I pray for those precious people here tonight who know that they do not know you, they have not trusted in you. I pray, Lord, that you would give them the courage, the faith, the strength to come before you and put their faith in you, to submit all things to you, to repent and believe. Lord, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.